Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 710 of the podcast and it is Saturday the 26th of August 2023 as I record this. It's also September this week. So just a reminder that we only have one third of the year left. So what are you going to achieve creatively in that time? Send me a message and let me know. I'll talk about how you can do that later. In today's show, I'm talking to Stephanie Wojtovich about writing poetry in the dark. And it's always lovely to talk about craft with a poet. And Stephanie is certainly enthusiastic about breaking the constrained stereotypes of what poetry is, as well as how we can break out of self-censorship, how to write, how to win a literary award, thoughts on the horror genre and the benefits of going to conventions and more. Even if you don't write or read horror, you will find this fascinating. So that's coming up in the interview section. So in publishing and book marketing things, well, Monica Leonel and Russell Nolte did a webinar on five trends that are shifting the future of publishing, and they have released it as a podcast on all platforms on their podcast, their show, Kickstart Your Book Sales. And I highly recommend listening to this. It's a couple of hours, but it's full of great information. The five trends they cover are the transition from retailer sales to direct sales. And they use the term wider than wide, which I quite like. And uh, you won't be surprised that I like this given what I've been talking about uh, for a while now. Uh, They split direct sales into crowdfunding like Kickstarter, subscriptions like Patreon, Substack, Ream and more, web stores, so Shopify, WooCommerce, landing pages where it's just one page um, to buy things and conventions and in-person signings. So that's the bulk of the of the session really is about that transition from retailers to direct. Number two is distance to presence, the rise of in-person events and the connection with other humans in experiences, communities, live courses in cohorts instead of evergreen, book clubs and more. Now, both of these two things, the first two things are what I'm definitely concentrating on and are more important in an age of AI content. Now, you know I am pro-AI as a tool for real human creatives as part of our process of creating amazing things in the world. I'm absolutely for that. But of course, what we're seeing is a mass of AI-generated content um, by different kinds of people. And that is not going to stop. So how do we prove we're human and differentiate ourselves from the mass of this AI produced content in order to make a living, reach readers as for basically what it will become free digital content drives revenue ever lower. So for me, it's about making beautiful physical products that people want, as well as selling digital books, products and experiences that people buy direct. So the money goes primarily to us and not the platforms. And also that we do more in-person things. So attend conferences, 
speaking if you if you are interested in doing that. Also, I'm focusing more on my Patreon community. And in fact, I just sent them um, a message with, with some things earlier. Uh, I'm going to do more live courses. In fact, I'm doing a meetup at 20 Bucks Vegas for patrons. So uh, if you're interested... <laughs> That will be in uh, November in Vegas. I'm also going to do more live courses and more webinars as opposed to evergreen courses. And I'll have a tier in my Kickstarter for writing the shadow to attend my shadow sessions, which will be run live in various time zones in order to account for down under Aussies and Kiwis. (laughs) There will be sessions for you. So that's the first two things that Russell and Monica cover. Then uh, they have a couple of other things. They talk about shifting from backlist to an online relationship with the audience through things like subscriptions and more active email marketing. So what is interesting here is that they said, you know, back when we all started back in the day, you could pretty much be a full time author with five books in a series. That's what we used to talk about. Well, once you get to five books in a series, it will be great. And then, of course, 2016, 2017 was when 20 books to 50k happened. And it was like, yeah, you really need 20 books, preferably, obviously, in the same genre, all of that. Now people, some people with over 50 books are struggling and the backlist is swamped. And of course, again, the AI content will make the backlist even bigger. But they give loads of ideas about how to use the backlist um, to leverage in things like Kickstarters and I will be doing backlist bundles as upsells and of course if you sell direct all of us who are selling direct are doing bundles of backlist and doing um, different discounts and all of that and many prolific authors are switching to subscriptions to get active readers involved and get paid up front so there are lots more varied business models that we can use. Then four and five, just quickly, four is gatekeeping to accessibility. So you might have thought we escaped the gatekeepers as indie authors, but Amazon has increasingly become a gatekeeper with KU as a gated program requiring exclusivity, shutting down accounts, regulating what can be published and all of that kind of thing. So the the shift is towards the accessibility of being able to sell everywhere in every format. And then five, casual readers to fandoms. Basically, instead of always focusing on trying to sell books to new people, which is what a lot of us have always done, it's about doubling down on your community and the people who love your work. So back to Kevin Kelly's Thousand True Fans all over again. So loads of really interesting stuff in this session. As I mentioned, it's over two hours, so you can listen to this for free. It is on whichever podcast platform you're using. I'll link to it in the show notes. But yeah, thanks to Russell and Monica. Great stuff in there. And yes, they, of course, they have a pitch for their events and their mastermind, um, which is absolutely right for some people. But the just the free webinar is fantastic. So definitely check that out. Also very interesting that BookBub has an article out this week on direct sales strategies we love from 36 authors and it has loads of stuff in. Um, Examples include make direct buy links stand out so readers have a choice like don't put it last or disappear it add content or add context on why readers should buy direct emphasizing they are supporting the author prioritize direct sales with special offers 
and use a reading order order page on your site. And I was thrilled to see that they have used the one, my reading order from jfpenbooks.com. It's linked on the top of the screen. And my plan is to put that reading order in the back of all my books. And that reading order obviously has then the links through to the various books. Now, amusingly, I only added that like two weeks ago. So I was really pleased to see it got picked up by that BookBub article. You can also offer exclusive coupons, bundles, sell merchandise and swag and much more. So great to see BookBub doing that. Now you can use an external link in the normal BookBub ads, the pay-per-click ads. So I'm going to see how, see what that does. I mean, I think one of the things is that BookBub has pretty much trained readers to get their books from the standard retailers, but we shall see. I think more and more people might try that. And in AI and futurist news, interesting blog post from Hugh Howey, the author of Wool and one of the best known indie author success stories. He's blogged about his approach to AI. Now, he has been very clear that he does not intend to use AI as part of his writing process and will include that fact on a copyright page in his books. But he also says, I want AI trained on my work. I have a very positive view of AI. These models are, in a way, a distillation of our combined intelligence, our thoughts, our wisdom, our unique writing voices. I love being part of that. I love that we are all contributing to it and building something that will certainly outlast us individually and may very well outlast us collectively. When humans are extinct, our sun an old, tired red giant, and what's left of us is cruising among the stars, I like to think that some tiny sliver of me is out there intermingling with some tiny sliver of you. Also, guess what? You don't have a choice. Legally, 70 years after you die, your works will become part of the public domain. The idea that AI is never allowed to be trained on your data is just wrong. It's a matter of when. If you want to delay it as long as possible, awesome, go for it. Just know that it's a temporary thing. Now, I agree with Hugh on this, and I know it's a really contentious thing, (laughs) Uh, but it's great that Hugh blogged about it because it means I can talk about it. Essentially, I have not blocked. So at the moment, you can add this robots.txt to your website and block the AIs from scraping your site. I have not done this. I do not want to block any of the bots or OpenAI or anything from scraping my site. My site has been scraped from the beginning of time. <laughs> from from when I started putting it up, our websites have been scraped by Google. And they have a generative AI, Google Bard. You can't escape this. I don't think that you can escape this. I also haven't included a no AI training clause in my book, as some people have advised. I think the future of search and discovery is AI powered, is generative AI powered. So I really want Joanna Penn and JF Penn to be part of the future. I don't want to be invisible to the large language models, just as I don't want to be invisible to Google or to Amazon. You are welcome to exclude your works. Of course, it's a personal choice. So put in your books and on your website, do not scrape me, etc. But, um, I'm with Hugh here. I do think there will be some licensing changes, so we'll be able to get paid to be part of that. Um, But at the moment, I, yeah, I'm positive and happy about being part of this. And I want my work, my voice to be discoverable. And in fact, if you go on ChatGPT or Claude or whoever or Bard, and you say, what do you know about Joanna Penn? 
it will tell you some interesting things. And you are welcome to say, uh, pretend you're Joanna Penn, please give me a pep talk on why I should uh, finish my book today or why I should go writing today. If you do that, it, sh- it might even speak in my voice, which will be quite cool. Well, not speak, literally speak, but write something back to you. So interesting. Also in AI, 11 Labs is out of beta, which means it's available to everyone. So many indies already use 11 Labs to generate audiobooks with AI voices, as well as audio versions of newsletters, websites, video narration and more. You can also clone your voice. It has support for more than 30 languages. That's at 11labs.io. Links in the show notes as ever. In June this year, Eleven Labs entered into a partnership with Storytel, which is one of the biggest audiobook companies in the world, with the goal of Voice Switcher, which will allow enhanced personalization of the Storytel service at scale, facilitating truly unique listening experiences customized for every ear. Now, I have talked about this for years, that I want to be able to switch the voice of an audiobook to a different one. And many people, including myself, have stopped listening to an audiobook when you can't stand the voice. It's just like, oh, I seriously cannot listen to this voice anymore. And anyone who feels that way about my voice isn't listening to this. (laughs) But I know it happens. We all have preferences around sound. It's a very personal thing. I would love people who don't like my voice to listen to my audiobooks in another gender and accent. So what if you want a southern US male voice or a Scottish woman or whatever you fancy? Um, I would like you to be able to do that. So I'm really interested in this and I will be checking out Eleven Labs in more detail. But for now, if you hear my voice on this show or in my audiobooks, it is still human me. I will tell you if I'm using a voice clone. I, again, I don't have any problem with using this type of stuff, but I am a, still a human narrator. <laughs> So I'm protecting some of this. So in personal news, I'm still deep in writing the shadow, turn your inner darkness into words, which is my next nonfiction book for writers. I have been editing this week. So essentially, I decided to edit the first two thirds of the book because I was pretty happy with those. So I edited those. I've pretty much almost finished. I'll finish that tomorrow. And for this pass, I print it out, I hand edit it, and (laughs) the pages are seriously a complete mess of scribbles. I might share some pictures uh, with my patrons, but it is quite satisfying and it's helping me figure out that final third of the book. There's also something in the air around the shadow right now, which is interesting. Chuck Palahniuk was on James Altucher's podcast talking about The Shadow and of course Chuck wrote Fight Club which I have already written about in The Shadow book because it's a classic example. Also Austin Cleon's email newsletter yesterday mentioned psychologist James Hollis who specialises in The Shadow and whose audiobook I've been listening to and also mentioned Carl Jung's Red Book which features in Writing The Shadow as well as my thriller Stone of Fire. So So it'd be really interesting to see whether there is a zeitgeist around this and whether this is sort of coming back into the collective creative consciousness. I mean, again, the interview today with Stephanie is a lot about this too. So really interesting. Also, personally, in terms of preparing for the Kickstarter of Writing the Shadow, I got a test print of the gold foil on the cover. So haven't finished the book yet, but got a cover printed and mocked up by Book Vault. And it's awesome. I love it. 
I've never had foil on a cover and it shimmers in the sun. Uh, I made a little video for my patrons to share how cool it is, uh, just sort of rotating the book so you could see the sun. Well, the cover, it's not a book (laughs) yet. I also mentioned last week it's going to have a ribbon. And Emily emailed, she said, a ribbon, three exclamation marks. Oh my goodness, Joe! more three exclamation marks. This is thrilling. (laughs) And yeah, it is. It's so funny how much we love these things and how giddy we are about making really beautiful books. And this is definitely part of sort of how I'm changing my business model is very much towards making more and more beautiful physical products, becoming, I guess, becoming like a better publisher in general and not just relying on digital, um, uh, what we have done for many years, <laughs> but is now really shifting as as a business model. So yeah, the that special edition with gold foil and the ribbon will only be in the Kickstarter. So unlike with pilgrimage i continue to sell the special hardback with photos and everything i still sell exactly the same one it's not signed but although you can buy signed editions but um with this kickstarter this writing the shadow edition with gold foil and a ribbon that will only be in the kickstarter and then there'll be there will be a hardback afterwards but it won't have either of those two things so if you're interested in getting that book there'll also obviously be ebook audio normal paperback workbook bundles as well as my shadow sessions live online writing course and other things the pre-launch page is up now at thecreativepen.com forward slash shadow book and I'll also be releasing a batch of consulting sessions again this is the only way I do consulting one-on-one consulting sessions now is with kickstarters so sign up for the pre-launch as they sold out almost immediately Uh, so you'll want to be on thecreativepen.com forward slash shadow book so thanks for your emails and comments this week and X's, if that's what we're calling them. Deborah left a comment on the Tonya Ellis interview about school visits. I did my first school visit today for free and it was excellent. Thanks to you, I thought about how I could make the visit more interactive than a simple book reading. And the reaction from both students and teachers was excellent. I was really touched at how enthusiastic they were. They want me to come back to read another in the series for the students and they're setting up the means by which parents can purchase my books through the school. I've been floundering when it comes to marketing ideas and I'm naturally shy. So this experience was a real boost to my confidence in getting on and marketing this series. Thanks again. You really helped. And that was just wonderful. Thanks, Deborah, for letting us know about that and um, putting that comment on Tonya's interview. I agree. I think it was super useful. And uh, yeah, this is, I mean, we. It, this is so cool. This is why I still love doing the show. Um, I know it really does help. Also, Jim left a comment on Joe Solari's interview saying, good interview with good insight and information. Jim also said, I have a picture of Fort Rosecrans Cemetery in San Diego to send to you. Where shall I send it? Now, I love this because, yes, I love seeing pictures of cemeteries and graveyards and ossuaries and crypts around the world. J.F. Penn loves all of that. (laughs) So, yes, um, I also love the comments and uh, everything you send me. I really enjoy that. So you can X me or send me an X, whatever the language is, at the creative pen with a double N. I'm pretty much back on X, which used to be Twitter, of course. It really is the most useful for me and where I learn the most from other people. So yes, I'm back on X at the creative pen. 
You can also leave a comment on the podcast show notes at thecreativepen.com or on the YouTube channel, or you can email me and tell me uh, where you're listening and what your comment is, joanna at thecreativepen.com. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So today's show is sponsored by Written Word Media, because however you write your books, you're going to have to reach readers somehow. And Written Word Media knows that marketing your book can be one of the most challenging parts of being an author. That's why they make marketing easy by providing quick, easy and effective ways to promote your books. Written Word is best known for their email promotion sites, Free Booksy, Bargain Bargain Booksy and Red Feather Romance. They have five promotional sites that send daily newsletters to a combined audience of over one million readers. They also have a site to promote audiobooks called Audio Thicket. When you purchase a promotion with Written Word Media, your book is sent to thousands of readers who love and read books in your specific genre. As the email hits inboxes, you'll see a flurry of sales or downloads of your title. They have announced new categories as well as new partners as the audience expands. And there are non-fiction as well as many fiction categories. Email promotions are priced based on how many readers are in the genre, ranging from $25 to $500. You can also add on Reader Reach Facebook ads. They've also introduced promo stacking options where you can schedule the Fussy Librarian, Hello Books, E-Reader IQ, as well as free, free Booksy, Bargain Booksy and Facebook ads for different genres. To help you get the most out of your book promotions, Written Word Media has launched Premium Membership, and I'm in the Premium Membership. Uh, it gives authors 10% off book promotions and special access to products and services like their new partnership with Yonder, the serial fiction app. I find the membership useful personally as it reminds me to book more slots and works out to be more cost effective for multiple promotions per year. Um, And it keeps me reminded to put the promotions on to make the most of my membership. So visit writtenwordmedia.com forward slash membership to take advantage of the discount or email them info at writtenwordmedia.com to ask for recommendations. And Ricky was on the show a couple of weeks ago, Ricky Wollman, talking about some of this ad stacking stuff. It was really interesting interview so go back and have a listen to that so this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting transcription and editing but my time in creating the show is sponsored by my patrons and they support the in-betweeny shows for ai and i've got uh, one coming up on ai images and book covers in the next few weeks I'm especially grateful to those patrons who've been supporting the show for years and months. You are amazing. And thanks to new patrons this week, Nanette Potter, Dino Manrique, Jamie Joyce, K&E Southworth, Kelly Dugan, Philip Van Ennis, Thomas Hagstrom and M.A. And if you support the show on Patreon, you get my extra monthly Q&A for patrons only where I answer your questions about writing craft, publishing, book marketing, making a living with your writing and more. I've also been doing extra videos. I'm going to be doing a lot more with my patrons uh, based on what I talked about earlier from uh, sort of making the most of subscription and direct sales. Patreon for me is one of my sort of direct to you, you lot uh, things and uh, even just 
this afternoon I sent an email with a little video about the gold cover and also a meetup at 20 Books Vegas. So if you support the show, you get access to all of that. And it's only um, not very much, like a coffee a month or a couple of coffees if you're feeling generous. You can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Stephanie M. Wytovich is a Bram Stoker award-winning poet, as well as a horror novelist and essayist. She's also the poetry editor for Raw Dog Screaming Press and the editor of Writing Poetry in the Dark, which is fantastic. So welcome, Stephanie. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. Oh, no, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. But first up, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing. Yeah, so I I wear a lot of hats in my day to day in my day to day life. So I teach literature and creative writing. I work in a couple of undergrad and grad programs, um, and then I'm of course I'm writing. And I, I had my first child back in 2022. So writing has kind of been it's this constant catharsis and kind of like quiet time to collect my thoughts during all of the madness of my day to day. But I've been writing for as long as I can remember. I've always loved to make up stories as a child. And that kind of, the only thing that really changed was that they got darker and darker as I grew up. (laughs) And then they just continued to get more morose and terrified as I moved further into adulthood. But writing, and especially writing poetry, has always been kind of what I identify as in everything, you know, first and foremost. Poetry has has really changed my life in so many ways, which is why I was so honored to have the opportunity to put out this book with Raw Dog Screaming Press, Writing Poetry in the Dark, because I want to bring some of that joy that poetry has given to me and kind of share it to make it more accessible with other people. There's a lot there, but you said that you write, really identify with poetry. So I, I want to get into that first and then we'll come back to some of the other darker stuff. But from your editor's note in writing poetry in the dark, quoting from the book, you said, I stopped trying to fit poetry in a box of what I thought it was and instead opened my eyes to what poetry could be. And I love that because I was taught poetry at school and it was like, this is literature. You need to, yes. it needs to be this particular thing. So, so tell us how we can do this. How do we allow poetry to break out or how have you done this? Yeah. I mean, I had a very, very similar experience. I think as As children, we're given poetry all the time. We're reading nursery rhymes and fairy tales, and we're getting all of these different versions of poetry that are fun and creative and whimsical and dark and weird and all of the above. And we attach to it. And then something happens around middle school. We're usually like introduced to Edgar Allan Poe, and we see how it can be dark. And we get Emily Dickinson, and we're like, oh my gosh, there's this whole other world that, like, this is so cool. And then we get to high school. And like you said, it's very much like read 17 Shakespearean sonnets and write me a poem in iambic pentameter. You fell AP English. And it like all of the joy is just kind mm. of like squashed because it becomes this very serious, terrifying thing. Right. And and that's not saying that formal poetry isn't wonderful and expressive because it is. But I think it just there's this shift where it becomes fun and imaginative to very serious and kind of scary. And we lose some of the creativity and joy that's associated with it. 
for me, my journey with it is a little bit different, odd. I'm not sure that quite the right word to really pinpoint it. I started writing poetry when I was probably around middle school, maybe a little bit younger. I was in therapy at the time and I was having a really hard time talking about some of the things that that I was struggling with. And my therapist had recommended to me that I start writing poetry and keeping a journal to kind of say the things that I wanted to say, but trusting that nobody else was seeing them. And that really opened a door for me in a lot of different ways in my life to kind of get out, get all the darkness out on the page and be really vulnerable without the fear of somebody reading it and judging me or something like that. And so I tried to keep my version of poetry and then the version of poetry that everybody told me that I had to be writing and reading very separate. And it wasn't until I, I would say probably later on in college, maybe my junior or senior year, I realized that I had all of this poetry that I wanted to start putting together, maybe as a collection. And so I gave myself a personal like challenge or maybe like a reading list where I wanted to start reading 30 collections of poetry every year to see what was out there. So I read classics. I read literary. I read Pablo Neruda's romance sonnets that he wrote to his wife. I read tons of Poe and Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath. And then I started reading a lot of contemporary writers that were getting more political with diversity and inclusivity. And I was reading Latin American poetry and I was reading a lot of, you know, Black voices and queer voices. And when I was seeing how there could be this shift that everybody's poetry looked different, it was kind of my light bulb moment that I don't want to say that there isn't a definite way to write poetry because we can all read poetry and kind of be like, oh, this person really gets it. Or maybe this person still needs a little bit of work in their writing. But it really opened the door that I could be creative and kind of push boundaries. And it didn't have to be this right or wrong way like I got when I had to write my sonnet in AP English. Mm. Um, And then it was really funny because last year I had an editor reach out to me who specifically wanted me to write a Shakespearean horror sonnet. And I laughed and I was like, oh my God, if somebody could find my Achilles heel, like this man did it. (laughs) This man is like triggering (laughs) all of my poetry woes. And I really like, I had a moment where like, do I want to do this? And then I absolutely was like, I I actually have to do this. (laughs) Like I have to prove to myself that I can sit down and do this but do it my way. And when I finished the poem and it eventually sold, it was kind of like my crowning achievement (laughs) that like somehow (laughs) I had gone full circle in life and everything was going to be okay. (laughs) Oh, that, I mean, it's so interesting listening to you talk about it because as you, because you also, you have novels, you have essays, you edit. So you see all these different things. Mm -hmm. I struggle enough with a short story and it almost feels like the intensity level of a poem is more than the intensity of a short story which Mm -hmm. is more intense than a novel Mm -hmm. and so when you say like oh I just read 30 collections in a year like I I have quite a lot of poetry on my shelves and I like reading Mm -hmm. poetry but it's almost like I'll pull a 
book off and I'll read one poem. <laughs> and yes, <then> that <laughs> will be enough. So I know you have a poetry collection coming out. So mm-hmm. maybe tell us about how do you put one together and how do you balance this intensity idea with a collection, which is almost like, I don't know, 60 novels or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's level. It's so wild. Well, this next one that's coming out is is unlike anything I've ever done before. So it's called On the Subject of Blackberries. And it's coming out from Raw Dog Screaming Press in September. And it is a collection that I quite literally wrote in three months when I was postpartum right after having my first child. And I guess like, which is already like a weird thing, (laughs) but like to make Mm. it even stranger. So kind of how I, I came about writing it was so I had a really, really difficult time postpartum. And I was diagnosed with depression. I had postpartum OCD, which is still something that I'm struggling with. And I had, and then I was trying to adjust to being a new mom. Like I had every feeling Mm -hmm. (laughs) and probably feelings that nobody's put a name to yet, like kind of on my shoulders and my comfort book, which is something that I, I read pretty regularly is we have always lived in the castle by Shirley Jackson, which I know is a weird comfort book, but (laughs) nevertheless. And so I, I picked that up because I, I wanted something familiar and I wanted something to kind of quell my nerves. And I started writing poems that were inspired by the book. And I was using automatic writing and I was using bibliomancy and I was using all of these kind of more alternative kind of witchy writing, creative writing um, course, like discourses to kind of pull poems from the book and from my head and it's very, very vulnerable. It's very dark, especially when you consider the time period that I was writing it. And I was using blackout poetry and found poetry. And I just, I lost, I quite literally lost myself in the book. And so for me, it was kind of like a homecoming. Like I felt like when the book was done that I had almost like exercised something that was in me that needed to come out. And I can't say that I've necessarily felt that way with putting a collection together before, because my approach is always very thematic. Like with Apocalyptic Mannequin, I knew that I wanted to write kind of like dystopian science fiction, world ending kind of poetry. And so that was how I started to build my poems and look at themes and different artwork and stuff like that for inspiration. But with Blackberries, it was very much like I just reached in and pulled something out of me and stuck it on the page. That's so interesting. So you said a couple of things. You talked about getting the darkness out on the page and that Mm -hmm. you feel like you maybe exorcised something when you write that way. And I feel this exactly. And this is why I think horror writers are actually the most mentally sane and well-adjusted people. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because they take you take all the bad stuff and you put it out there Mm -hmm. in some form. And of course, it might be some metaphorical form or it might be a poem or novel or, or whatever. But you also touched there on depression therapy. Mm -hmm. So where's the line between writing that is therapy and writing that is because we're publishing these things for a reader? So where's the line between that, you know, looking inside and then thinking about the reader on the outside? Yeah. So I think sometimes there there is a good crossover and I think sometimes it just has to be separate. I have poetry that I've written that no one will ever see. I don't care how desperate (laughs) 
I ever get <laughs> to have something published. Like it's just not getting out there. And I think that's really healthy. I think sometimes we do have to write for ourselves to remind ourselves why we're doing this. But on the same token, sometimes I will read those same poems and I will find a line or I will find an emotion or an image or something that I think I could work with and kind of play with genre a little bit with it. And I might write something completely separate that kind of plays with those ideas, but isn't that idea, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a lot of the time, I think, you know, we can, we can really, and I, I guess that in itself is kind of therapy because you're continuing to process and process and have conversations with yourself. Just one way is a little bit more blunt and one way is a little bit more hidden if you're talking about monsters and the supernatural and stuff like that. But that's something that I feel like I take that over into my fiction too, because sometimes when I'm really struggling with, if I'm at a point in my story and I don't really know where to go with it, I'll start writing poetry based on the short story that I'm writing, or I'll start writing in my character's voice. And that usually helps me unlock things. And sometimes the things that it unlocks are emotions that I haven't been able to kind of pinpoint yet. And so I do get very vulnerable in my fiction that way. So I think they ebb and flow and work with each other, but a practice that I do myself and that I've started encouraging a lot of my poetry students to do, and this will feel very scary when I say it, is to to keep a shame journal. And so it's all like, I will, I have a little notebook where I write down like all the things that embarrass me or that I would be kind of like afraid if somebody ever found them out, like little quirks and maybe things that aren't necessarily so quirky, like things that just like gross me out or, or things like that. And when I feel like I'm in a place where I I want to start playing with that and start having some of those conversations, I'll open that notebook up and start writing poems based on it. And I did that once with a piece called The Crone Confessions that I published in Black Telephone Magazine under Clash Publishing. And it is one of the darkest things I swear I've (laughs) written. And it And people respond so well to it every time because it takes it a step further than I feel like most people expected me to go with it. And I think if we can find a way to acknowledge our lines or acknowledge where we put our boundaries and then start having conversations with ourselves about why those boundaries are there, what those boundaries are protecting us from, and then slowly start inching over them in our writing, I I tend to think that that's where the gold usually lies. And this is the heart of it, I think, is you talk there about the boundaries. And for many of us, we then censor. We're like, well, I'm I'm not going to write that because, you know, someone will judge me. My partner will judge me, my family, mm-hmm. the reader, like anonymous people, but also people close to us. Right. So how do we stop that? And then they might not even write it in a journal, let alone in a poem to publish or a book to publish. So how can yeah. we stop self-censoring? What is your process for kind of moving that boundary so we can actually put stuff out there? Yeah, I I actually had a really good conversation about this with Celia Stage and Katrina Monroe at StokerCon. We were on a Monstrous Mothers panel together. And so we were talking a lot about being mothers, writing about mothers, our own mothers, the whole mm. kit and caboodle. And I, I think it was Katrina that said that she had heard a piece of advice years ago that she always tries to keep in the back of her head. And it was right like your family or your loved ones are dead. 
And that is, I mean, it's fantastic advice, but it's really hard advice to swallow because we do need to write. I mean, we can't censor ourselves in our writing or the right. Everybody's going to feel like that wall is up. Right. Mm -hmm. And that the reader can't access you or can't access the characters in the way that they're meant to, to kind of get the full picture of the story. But it's also incredibly difficult because, like you said, you know that these people are going to be reading or hearing conversations about your work. So for me, for me personally, that is something that I have been trying very hard to keep in the back of my head as I continue writing now, but it took me a very long time to get to a point where I was okay with starting to cross over some of those walls that I built. I would say I I put out maybe four or five collections of poetry before I really felt like I started to take off a mask and show readers like who is actually behind and what I was capable of. So I think the best advice here is that it's something that you have to practice. The more that you do it, obviously, the easier it's going to get. And I would just challenge yourself every time that you're writing a story or a poem or working on a novel, take a brick out of the wall every time. Try to push yourself. It doesn't have to be leaps and bounds, but just a little bit further and see how that fills and sit with it. And then pretty soon it's going to be muscle memory. You're going to feel more calm confident. You're going to know how to talk about it. You're going to know how to really put it on the page and it won't be this scary, threatening thing anymore. Yeah. I I also feel it was my fifth novel called Desecration, which was when I was like, no, I'm, I'm writing this now, Yeah, but it's interesting. I mean, I agree with you on thinking that it, you know, write as if everyone else is dead. Yeah. <laughs> but in reality, <laughs> they're not. And yep. So, and I, I mean, my Mama said to me, I can't read that. It gives me nightmares and I don't know what I did to you. (laughs) And I'm like, you did nothing to me. That's not necessarily where these things come from. Although, you know, mothers, we could talk about mothers another time. But um, (laughs) why, well, I guess, where do you think this comes from? I almost think that perhaps those of us who are into the darker things are maybe born this way. I don't know. Where Mm -hmm. do you think this comes from? Well, I know for me personally, I feel like I could pinpoint it very specifically. Oh, okay, great. (laughs) So I've told this story a couple of times. So I think my parents are used to it at this point. But my, so my family is, is very, very much like the Adams family. So like Halloween was always our Christmas. We've always been very spooky. My parents love horror. My mom used like every, all of my childhood things growing up were spooky and weird. I had a clown that sat on a swing, like right next to my crib, <laughs> my room. Not like, a clown. Was, oh yeah. It was absolutely, my, yeah, it was very creepy. Um, and I hated Halloween and I hated horror because I just, it was everywhere and I was terrified of it, but it was almost kind of like, I didn't really have a choice. Like I was going to grow up to be Wednesday Adams or I wasn't going to like fit in the family. And eventually I think my mom started showing me what horror could really be. It didn't have to be jump scares. It didn't have to be slashers. I can remember the first time I sat down and watched interview with a vampire with her and was just fascinated by vampires and like how romance could be kind of partnered with horror or then like the first time I watched Evil Dead and saw how comedy could be with it and how it also was having these like massive discussions 
about things that I desperately wanted to talk about, but was afraid to, but I could talk about them under the veil of like a spooky horror movie. And once I think I kind of cracked that code, I recognized the potential for horror and I just never looked back. Like, I think that it just gives us such a platform to have such difficult, difficult dis- like discussions, whether they're personal, political, like emotional, whatever you want it to be, but to talk about them, like behind the cover of like a werewolf or the creature from the black lagoon or Frankenstein's monster. And I just, I love that. I feel like it's very freeing. It's very, you know, horror doesn't judge you. It doesn't sugarcoat anything. It it just is what it is. And I think as a kid, it's, it's so hard to just just be who you are. And horror just gave me the confidence to do that. And so that's why I was so drawn to it. And I continue to think that's why I kind of have stayed here because the community on the whole is, is so welcoming and so loving and just, you know, they just, they want to play and they want to have fun, but they also want to have these really intense conversations that I think we need to be having right now. So it just, it continues to inspire me relentlessly and positively and all the other good adjectives that I could put there. <laughs> oh, that that is so interesting. I think for me, it's maybe the opposite and that I always had a dark little soul, but I was brought up in a sort of the power of positive thinking kind mm-hmm. of thing. Well, oh, yes. You're not sick. You, it's all in the mind. You just need to think positive and you can do anything. And so I pushed all of that. You know, I always had to be positive and, and happy. Wasn't yeah. allowed really to be sad or any of the things that might be considered darker emotions. Right, right. Yeah. So it's interesting to think where we came from. But you said <laughs> yeah. there, um, that horror is not just jump scenes and slashes. And I totally agree with you. Like, I don't do either of those things. I don't watch those things. I don't read those things. But you also said it is what it is. Horror is what it is. But it, you say that and so many people have these wrong impressions oh, of, yeah. what, <laughs> yeah, of what horror actually is. And that some of the stuff I've read, I mean, it feels to me very literary, very experimental, very kind of weird, to be honest. And, and yeah. that's maybe why it's not mainstream as opposed to what people think it is. So what are some of the things that the word horror can encompass? Yeah, I I often I kind of chuckle too, because when I see these conversations about what horror is and isn't, it, it, it feels like a reflection to me of like what poetry is and isn't. And I, I just I think people are so desperate to put a label on things. And if something isn't this binary black and white situation, like people start to panic. And I always tell people like when they ask me like, oh, who was your influence? Why did you start writing like horror poetry? I always say I worshiped at the church of Plath and Sexton. And I don't think that the majority of the of readers and poets would say that Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton are horror poets. Mm. But to me, they were. And they unlocked something that I thought was so dark and powerful. And it pushed me to kind of start having those conversations with myself. And I, so I guess to answer your question, I mean, horror and what scares us is going to be different for every person. Everybody's going to have a spectrum of what they think a genre is, what it can be, what it isn't. And ultimately, I I think that's a good thing because it, it forces us to keep having conversations about our relationship with the genre and where we want to push it, where we want to see it go. But I just, I don't think that we need to be so concerned about putting it in a box. And I feel like with a lot of things in life right now, that's kind of where we're at. We want simple, 
direct words to describe everything. And like, that's not the human experience. That's just not that humans aren't like that. And so I think we need to worry a little bit more about what things can be, how we reinterpret the haunted house as a metaphor for queerness or how we look at the transformation of a werewolf and how that can relate to sexual assault and have bigger conversations, what's going on. Like those are the things that I think we need to focus on because I watched, um, oh, they, it was a documentary series that they put on shutter called queer for fear. And it's a very short documentary about the history of horror and how it is positively just completely gay, which I firmly believe that it is. And it was so eye-opening and beautiful and sad and wonderful because it it showed essentially how monsters were a metaphor for queerness. And I think that we are we're at a point now where we can take that even further. And I think we need to focus on how we can keep building the genre rather than trying to like stuff it down into that box and give it a name because horror is so much bigger than anything that we can talk about because it's different for everybody. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, monsters are pretty much always a metaphor, right? For something. Right. Um, yeah, I've actually mm-hmm. just written a monster novel called Catacomb and and it is, it, I know what the monster is a metaphor for. I haven't really yes. talked about it. So I won't talk about it, but it's almost like, yeah, I mean, we we kill the monster somehow and maybe we have to keep killing mm-hmm. the monster in lots of different ways in lots of different books. But mm-hmm. is the labelling a problem because of basically Amazon and the way we shop online and the way we use these categories I mean even in a bookstore what annoys Mm -hmm. me actually I'm here in the UK and it annoys me in a bookstore because I literally will go to the tiny tiny horror section which is might Mm. be two tiny half shelves and it is just Stephen King um yeah maybe a couple of Dean Koontz and then it will be really old books whether the authors are dead like Edgar Allan Poe like you say and it won't be modern horror but if you go to the sci-fi fantasy section you will actually find books that you and I might call horror absolutely Um, like you mentioned vampires I mean anything that has a vampire could technically be horror but now it's kind of is it dark fantasy is it romantic fantasy or whatever so maybe that's the problem is we have to shelve these things somehow (laughs) in the U.S. right now I've noticed that there's typically like three Barnes and Nobles that I will usually shop at and their horror sections are booming now and it's so exciting because my experience was very much like yours for the majority of my life but I feel like in the last maybe two or three years, like the, like there is a prominent horror section. I'm seeing so many of my friends books on the shelves. Like I have booksellers who are like putting Mexican Gothic in my hands and Mallerman's Daphne in my hands. And it's very exciting, but that's a very new development. And I think that people are still, I think there's always been a stigma on the label of horror. Like we've always been like the redheaded stepchild of publishing for whatever reason. But I think we're starting to see that breakdown and people are starting. I think booksellers and publishing, I think are starting to realize like how big that readership is. And also that like people maybe who haven't even previously been interested in horror are kind of flocking to that now, especially like I say post pandemic, but I think 
think we're still kind of in it in some way, shape or form, but, you know, post pandemic, because it's therapeutic to read, like we have our own personal horrors that we're all dealing with. And it's kind of nice to be able to see somebody else go through something scary. That's not us. Like there's a anxiety transfer that happens. And so I think the face of horror is starting to change a little bit. And I think we're seeing people be a little bit more accepting and kind of testing the waters. Like, okay, if we start putting Eric LaRocca as like queer, violent horror fiction here, how will readers like who will flock to that and everybody flock to it? And like, I think they're testing the waters to kind of see how how it works and they're seeing how hungry people really are for it. So hopefully that'll continue to change and we'll see it all over the place with these sections being more recognized and horror being talked about more broadly. I think we're seeing agents pick up horror and say they're specifically looking for it more. So I I hope this isn't a trend, but rather just a new move in a very positive direction for all of us. Oh, no, that that does give me hope because often these things start in the US and then move into other places. So yeah, that is really positive. I I also wanted to ask you because you're a multi-award winning writer and editor. So you see both sides of the publication process. And what I have also noticed about horror is it can be pretty literary and they're also often standalone because of course lots of people sometimes die sometimes not all the time but and I have really thought about this in terms of a lot more genre writers so I write thrillers as you know have a long-running thriller series and it's actually quite difficult to enter awards with later books in a series because they might not make sense as a standalone I guess what are some of the things you see in award-winning horror fiction and is I guess being a standalone one of them and some of the differences between mainstream books and award winners? Yeah, I think the first thing that's most important in this is self-advocacy. So I think that, and I know I'm really bad at this. Like I hate like constantly talking about like a project and like marketing it. And I just, I feel like I'm kicking a dead horse and people are like, Stephanie, please just stop talking (laughs) what you're working on. (laughs) But we have to do that, right? We have to, we, nobody's going to advocate for us like we advocate for ourselves. So I think that that's something that like, it's going to be uncomfortable for a while, but we have to just keep doing it until it's not uncomfortable, essentially. And we have to, you know, constantly, I think it's really important to be aware of the opportunities that are out there know the awards, know the editors, follow the editors on social media, try to build authentic relationships with these people. I mean, it's very obvious when somebody is trying to be your friend because they want something from you (laughs) versus you legitimately being like, I'm such a fan of the work that you put out. Let me buy you a drink and let's talk about it. Like, I think building authentic relationships without the quid pro quo relationship is so unbelievably important. And it's such a huge problem with social networking. So I think that's something to keep in mind as you're growing and exploring and advocating for your work and trying to be aware of the opportunities out there. And so when you have a project and you eventually find an editor, I think it's going to look a little bit different if you're doing something in the indie world versus in like if in the commercial publishing world, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I think something to keep in mind constantly is that I I don't I feel like this is going to contradict everything I just said. Like you don't want to work on a project with an award in mind. Yeah. No, I agree. Want, yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? You want to be writing because you want to be writing. 
and because you need to write the story and telling the story is fun. And when you're doing that, again, it's going to be authentic to the reader that you're not putting in a checklist of things to try to get the Shirley Jackson award or to try to get that Edgar Allen. Like, so I think you have to be very honest and authentic with yourself. And then the questions that you have to start asking yourself are, how much of this am I potentially okay with changing? Is this vision something that's malleable? Or is this something that like, I really want to keep it the way that it is? Because when you go commercial, if you're writing like this bizarre, weird thing, one, it might not be able to be commercial. So your reach might not be as big. But if you go to an indie publisher, and they love how bizarre and weird it is. And you know that this is the right fit and that they are going to scream it from the top of the mountains. Your reach might be smaller, but that word of mouth and like once it finds that niche group of people, like it will explode. And so I think you have to think about what your goals are and what your personal kind of like artist statement is with that project and constantly be having that evolving discussion with yourself from book to book or project to project. So you can see where the best fit it it is because a commercial publisher may put it out, but it may not go to the right audience. You know what I mean? Like more people Mm -hmm. might have access to it, but it might not, it might miss the people that the indie publisher could have directly targeted. So I think it's a very complicated conversation, Mm -hmm. which I think is why it's so important. Kind of like how we were talking before, like you want to find your tribe, you want to find your people, you want to find a really good editor. You want somebody that you can trust to give you good feedback. And that can kind of help have these kind of rolling conversations with. And then I think the awards find you honestly, because again, if they meet the right readers and they're in the hands of the right people, that stuff, like you'll get, you'll get the return on profit, the return on interest that you're putting out into the publishing world. So you talk there about finding your people and you're really active in the horror community and the Horror Writers Association. And you mentioned StokerCon before yes. and uh, we were talking before the recording and I was like, I had a ticket when it was in the UK, and I, but I haven't <laughs> been. And I've been a member of the Horror Writers Association for a few years. But I wondered, what are the benefits for authors who are listening who might be like, oh, I don't know. I mean, I'd love to find my people, but how do I know? So what are the benefits for authors to be involved with the community of writers, not just to be sort of seeking readers. Yeah, uh, they're countless, truly. Uh, So I've been an active member of the Horror Writers Association for, I think, 10 plus years now. And I'm not being hyperbolic when I say this, like it has truly changed and enriched my life in so many ways. And I, and it's also very different from when I attended my first world horror convention, (laughs) like years and years ago, where it still felt a little bit like, um, like maybe a little bit clicky. Like I was very shy. I didn't know exactly where I fit in. And now when I go as kind of a, a, somebody who's been to a lot of the cons and I see new people come in, like it is so welcoming and inspiring. Nobody's going to let anybody be sitting in a corner. They're going to bring you to the bar. They're going to bring you to dinner. They're going to bring you in conversations. And there's just such a general excitement to be around people who just get it (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and who know those feelings. So I think in terms of finding your people, you truly can't find a better convention, a better organization of people who are just going to be there to support you. But beyond the like lovey-dovey 
<laughs> approach to this. There are so many educational opportunities for new writers, for professional writers. The HWA offers so many different scholarships for poetry, for nonfiction writing. They have diversity grants. They have the scholarship from hell that they give out to fund somebody to go to StokerCon and get the hotels and everything. They have a mentorship program where let's say you wanted to start writing poetry, but like you don't know where to start. They can pair you up with somebody who's been working in poetry for years and they can work one-on-one with you. They have stuff for young adult writing. Like they just added a middle grade section to the Stoker ballot. So the HWA is, is getting more inclusive and more diverse. And I mean, they have a mental health initiative where they're constantly having rolling discussions around self-care and how mental health is being depicted in horror. And I could go on and on and on. There are just so many facets of the organization that are there to support you, protect you, educate you, and just kind of mold you into the writer that you want to be. So I truly, I cannot, I, I cannot recommend it enough. It has changed my life. It has given me so many opportunities. I've got editing experience for them. I got scholarships that funded certain projects and books that I've been working on. Like it is, it's wonderful. Just period. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. Uh, <laughs> you totally sold me. Yes. <laughs> But um, I guess for people listening, it doesn't have to be the Horror Writers Association. It can be another genre organization, like wherever you feel, like you said, find your people. And uh, I mean, that's it it does. It's the people who accept the type of thing that you write. So I'm not going to fit at a romance writing (laughs) conference. (laughs) Me either. (laughs) Even though there is a crossover, you know, some people do write (laughs) horror romance or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's the reality. And we're all weird, aren't we? We're weird in our own little worlds. And it's nice to hang out with people who are weird in the same way. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> or teach us to be weird in different ways. It's yes. Well, there we go. That's fantastic. So uh, where can people find you and your books and everything you do online? Yeah. So I, you can go to my website, which is stephaniemytovich.com. I have a blog that you can access from that page where I host poet interviews and I do a monthly writing recap. I'm on social media everywhere as Sytovich. And then I also have have a horror bookstagram account that you can find at the haunted bookshelf and then my books are available anywhere that books are sold brilliant well thanks so much for your time stephanie that was great thank you so much this was wonderful So I hope you found the discussion with Stephanie interesting and that perhaps you might try to push the boundaries of your self-censorship in your next writing session And I go into more about how you can do this in Writing the Shadow. If you're interested in that book, sign up for the pre-launch page for the Kickstarter at thecreativepen.com forward slash shadow book. Next week, I'm talking about producing visual high quality books and thinking differently with Holger Niels Pohl, which is a great conversation that I look forward to sharing with you. In the meantime, happy writing. And I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, 
you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time. <laughs>